You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Evan Ratliff, Max Linsky. Guys. Hey. We've got a crackerjack of a show today. <laughs> <laughs> that can only mean one thing. You were the host. <laughs> Who did you talk to this week? You guys have never hosted a crackerjack episode. <laughs> you know what? I've actually listened to this episode. Um, this week, I talked to Andy Greenwald, who writes about TV for Grantland. He's hands down my favorite uh, TV writer in the country. I read all of the things he writes about the shows I like and sometimes don't watch shows because he has written something negative about them. Um, but it's a really interesting time to be a TV critic, I think. There's like a real boom going on, and he had some uh, interesting insights into it. Doesn't he not like the word critic? That's true. He doesn't like the word. He, he's a TV writer. Damn it. <laughs> I, I like that they're, that they're uh, moving away from the word critic. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a healthy move. It's also like you know all all of these sort of lines are blurring. You know, um, it's not like the same job as like a movie critic who like reviews like things with a man in the chair every week to week. Like the genres are are moving and and people's viewing habits are are shifting. So uh, it's it's just an interesting time to be to be writing about this stuff. Yeah, I mean a lot of things are shifting. Like uh, you could be a magazine, yeah, but you could also be a conference. Ooh, say wow. Thank you for that lob, Max. There you go, buddy. I was actually so unprepared for it that I did not know what you were talking about. Uh, one of our sponsors this week is the 256 Festival, which is put on by the good people behind Kill Screen, uh, include my friend Jamin Warren. It's a three-day celebration of the life well played, where games and culture meet. They've got a film program, arcade, conference. It's May 15th to 17th in Brooklyn. Uh, speakers include one of the founders of OK Cupid and David O'Reilly, who created the video games and the Oscar-winning film Her. Uh, you can use the code LONGFORM when you check out at bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash 256 LONGFORM. Then use code LONGFORM. You'll get 15% off tickets. Link's in the show notes, And I'll too. be there if you want to say hi. Oh, yeah. Hey. Got to say hi to Aaron. Uh, who else uh, is sponsoring us this week? Also sponsoring the show this week is Tiny Letter. Tiny Letter is a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. It is done by the good me- people at MailChimp, the good meeple at Chimp and uh, both. both of them. And in, in uh, Tiny Letter News, I don't know if you guys saw this, you read that Laura Olin newsletter, Everything Changes? You guys ever get, get that I, one? I got that one. That's one of my favorite Tiny Letters. It is now the All Newsletter. Really? The All has has taken Laura Olin's newsletter and made it their own. They're one and the same. Tiny Letter, it's on the come up. Growing like kudzu. They're smart like that, the All. They are. Do smart things like they that. Find the good, they find the good shit. All right, now here's a Cracker Jack interview. <laughs> Aaron with Andy Greenwald. Welcome, Andy Greenwald. Hi. We've been going back and forth uh, trying to schedule this for a while, and I'm always curious, like, you write 
minimum about two shows a week. So I'm kind of interested in what yeah. your weekly schedule like. Are you like <laughs> have to be fiercely protective of your time in order to like watch enough? Well, it's it's a good question. I almost don't want to lift the curtain because people assume I watch a lot more television than I probably realistically yeah. can or do. I, I found that if I are just, you just watch, looking at Wikipedia recaps at this point, well, I'm almost at that point. <laughs> I mean, the truth is, people ask me all the time on Twitter, like, "Oh, what do you think of this? Have you seen this? Do you have thoughts on on that?" And the yeah. truth is, if I if I haven't written about it, I probably haven't watched it yet. But to your to your question, no, it's not the TV that I'm protective of. It's family time. It's like the time <laughs> away from work because yes. you know working on the internet can bleed and blend. And then the the job that I have that I'm lucky to have involves, as you alluded to, a lot of writing and a lot of watching. And those are two distinct things. Yes. So just trying to maintain both of those sides of the job while having a balance of actual like human life is is a priority. Despite your um, wish to not have the curtains pulled back, I'm, yeah. I'm going to tug at the curtains. That's the whole point of this. So, I understand. how do you decide what to watch? It's interesting. I mean, we're in a moment right now where there are some established shows that are just, you know, part of the conversation no matter what. It would be embarrassing uh, if you, like, hadn't seen Mad Men at that's this right. point. I mean, it, it helps that that, I think, is, you know, probably one of my favorite shows of all time. So, I would be watching that show anyway. Yes. But, but yeah, like, uh, you know, certainly I write a lot about Game of Thrones when Louis comes back, you know, when Boardwalk Empire was on. I'm, I'm, my brain is cooked in terms of what shows. I, I can pretty much only think of like the shows that are on right now. But to your bigger question, I think the job has evolved to the point where a new show on uh, an established network. So like if FX debuts something, if yeah. Netflix debuts something, likely HBO, uh, at this point, Cinemax is in the conversation, AMC, it's going to get watched and covered um, initially. The issue becomes how many shows can I keep up with and how many shows can I revisit. Every fall, I try to watch every new pilot, both because of my own personal taste, the taste of our audience, and general quality levels. I end up not watching that much network stuff after that point. If I could change anything about my job, I, I wish that I had more time to just press pause on all of the obligations and assignments and just maybe catch up on something unexpected, delve into something surprising. We really don't have much off-season anymore, you know? It's not like sports, so and the summer is now busier than the fall. Like in January, there was a moment when a couple new shows that were, I was sort of excited about, under-the-radar shows, like Fortitude on a network I'd barely heard of called Pivot. But even that, I, I never ended up being able to finish. I have to circle back to it. How do you know when to jump off the wagon? For me, it's actually become more of when to stay on the wagon. Okay. Like, there's so many shows that I am absolutely going to be watching every episode of, and then that's already a huge chunk of time. I would say the more interesting discussion for me is, like, after four episodes or however many I get serviced by the network, like, how many, the shows that I'm actually really excited to keep going with. You know, and then we get into conversations like the way Netflix does shows, where even if I'm super excited about it, chances are the fans of the show certainly if not the general public is going to be able to watch way ahead of me right there's always something that's the thing there's just always something my list of what i should be watching is very long and you're pretty much the sole tv critic at grantland right now it feels to me like yeah. you're like one man like surfing on an ever larger and larger wave it's like that's a nicer version of the the, the sisyphus myth that i was yeah. going to reach for yeah like just never being able to keep up um i am i am the tv critic like that's my job that's my beat I'm very lucky that there are people who, who cover other shows and who can dip in and out on the blog, you know, for, whether it's a show that I don't watch or whether it's a show that we need more coverage on. So there are, there are other TV voices, but I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the main one, yeah. I feel like what's happening in TV and, and what happens sort of to you for, with a trickle-down effect as a TV critic is yeah. we're reaching this sort of mania point. Yes, we are. When I imagine what a TV critic was in... 1991. I'm picturing someone on one of those bicycles with a big wheel in front, a little wheel in the back, yes. a top hat, a monocle. Yes, exactly. A genteel lifestyle. A genteel lifestyle. And, and you're kind of um, mining for gems yes. in a in a uh, cave of crap. Yes. So when I imagine that job, I sort of, it's, it's like a lot of kind of like, well, you know, the networks did this and this. And what you have now is this outpouring mm -hmm. of pretty ambitious stuff that is all sort of um, dressed in the clothes of quality, if not actually quality. Exactly. I'm sort of interested in like how you keep an internal barometer when you know so much stuff is sort of going for prestige, yes. going to be big. You've been doing this for how, how long have you been writing about TV? Uh, full time for I started on Grantland the, the day it launched. And that was June of '11. Yeah, I had a piece about HBO that day. So essentially, I've been doing it for four years. Four years. Yeah. So like even then, I think we've been seeing sort of like a, a ramp up um, yes, to more and more stuff. 
Are you having to sort of recalibrate yourself as a writer in the face of the, this onslaught? You're absolutely dead on to say that we are seeing an, an, an enormous glut of shows dressed in the finery of excellence. I also think that at this moment, there's never been a better time for the very good and maybe not so much great. Mm-hmm. I think it's been interesting to try and articulate a critical point of view in terms of what is significant, what is artistic, what is sort of meaningful, and what is fine. A lot of TV is fine, and that's okay. I mean, right. the thing about TV is it's, it's an enormous uh, ocean, and you know sometimes I just want to watch Chopped. And I don't right. write about Chopped, but I find it very relaxing. And some right. people feel that way about the Big Bang Theory or something. You know, there's, there's a lot of TV for a lot of different moods, types of people, styles, evenings. But choosing the diamonds from the... I don't know. What's, I've lost my own metaphor here. What, what, what's not... It's like choosing the diamonds... Um, from the slightly scuffed rubies? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean... W- but there, but you, to your bigger point, there's definitely... I've had to sort of let go in a way, and yeah. even just within the last four years. Like, I, there's just no way I'm going to be able to do some stuff. There's some shows that I really... A show like Justified, which started before I started, that I've always admired and kind of liked. I just had to say I can't do it. Like, there's right. no way I can go backwards and forwards at the same time. Well, it sort of strikes me that... Um... When you take someone like A.O. Scott, who's a who's a film writer, yeah, I read it. One of the very best. No one reads A.O. Scott's reviews and says, "God, I gotta see it. like how am I going to keep up with all these movies?" There yes. isn't there isn't the same assumption right. that the audience is all going to follow you around and that there will be like a, a cultural movement mm-hmm. towards these things. Well, you haven't seen X, and and TV is sort of unique in this idea that the whole serious audience is going to chase a good number of these shows four, five, well, eight seasons down. Well, the other difference is that, and this is one of the reasons why I really like television, is that it's an ongoing conversation, not only with the audience and fans, but with the show. Yeah. You know, A.O. Scott doesn't revisit the movie next week to talk about how it's changed or how right. it's improved. I do think that what he has and what, you know, reviewers of anything have to, to, to sort of navigate for themselves is the eternal divide and criticism between being servicey and being aesthetic in a way, you know, yes. uh, taking a longer view. I sometimes avoid reading movie reviews because I don't want to be spoiled or I don't want to you know, have my opinion colored. But at the same time, when I read someone as incredible as A.O. Scott or Manola Dargis, I love co- to colleague Wesley Morris, or we- of course, or Wesley Morris. I mean, I, these are people who I like to read because I'm just like to see how their brains work and think and what it says about the larger culture. So I try to approach every piece that I write thinking that everyone is going to read it. Yeah, that sounds vain. But I, what I mean is I don't assume that because I'm writing about a show that only X number of people watch, um, they're the only people who are going to read it. I, I would like to hope that in every piece that I write, I'm trying to say something larger about TV, the business, the art storytelling, whatever. That's probably an impossible goal, but it sort of helps motivate me. Well, I think that's really interesting. And that is how I read your writing. I'm a person who's interested in TV with a pretty high budget of hours, but Uh, still a limited budget of hours to spend. So I'm interested in how you've developed that that style, I guess, that sort of a format where you like what goes into writing about TV for everyone? How like how have you evolved that as a style? I mean, I, I think that just on a basic level, there is always going to be a servicey element. People want to know if it's good or not. They want to know if it's worth investing in. They want to know if it gets better after three or four or whatever. Right. The way you just spoke about the hours that you have is is really, really indicative of where we are right now with 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 culture. It's uh, an investment. You know, sometimes I consider myself like a like a wealth management consultant where I'm basically saying strong buy, you know, uh, on this one, invest your money here. And sometimes I lose money for people. Yeah. You know? uh, that's a really weird way to think about it, but it's kind of true. It's also absolutely a buyer's market right now. Yeah. Um, there's just tons and tons of stuff to watch. In terms of your, your larger question, I wrote about a lot of things before finding out that I really like writing about TV. Um, I was a music critic for a very long time in the course of just being a freelance writer for over a decade, you know, ended up writing about movies or politics or extreme sports for a while. I mean, I don't know anything about that, but right. if you're a freelance writer, you write about what they ask you to write about. What was interesting to me at the beginning of writing about music and became less interesting at the end because I realized as much as I love music and I do, I had no real interest in how it was made at a certain point. Like I, I didn't want to interview any more drummers. Drummers are wonderful people and drums are very essential, but I didn't really care about how that sausage was made anymore. Right. Um, as soon as I started writing about TV, I realized what I care deeply about is storytelling and particularly storytelling in this bizarre, incredible accident factory that is television, which is, for me, the, it's the most fascinating medium 
out there because it takes pure imagination and, uh, you know, seat of your pants kind of anxiety. And it puts it and it crams it into this almost impossible framework where you can never be perfect. You have to just get it done at a certain point. You work with people and you trade ideas. And sometimes the worst mistakes turn into the happiest accidents. And and no matter what, you have to something is going to go on the air. And that appealed to me as a journalist. You know, the magazine was going to get done one way or another. Uh, it appealed to me as someone who had spent time writing two books and found it so isolating and lonely and like just this thought of being isolated with this perfectionism, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so we start with a new show, right? Okay. okay. Your new Showtime show, you get four episodes. Yeah. You watch them back to back? It's a good question. Uh, if I'm going to be writing about it, I rarely would have four hours to to do it all at once, um, or especially to take notes, but I'll definitely, like, I'll do two one day and then one in the morning, one in the evening of another day, yeah. As you start thinking, how am I going to write about this? Mm -hmm. I want to write about this in a way that's both servicey for people who are considering this show yeah. and making a larger point about right. the TV industry. Like, are you taking notes, like, throughout this watching process? Yeah. I mean, if I if it's a show I'm recapping, I take crazy notes. So, like, every episode of Game of Thrones, which, by the way, they're too long. This is just a pet peeve. TV shows have gotten too long on cable. Just because you have an hour, you don't need to use the hour. Like, I mean, it's, 57 minutes, 58 minutes. An hour is three, like, network 20-minute shows. That's right. A network hour-long drama is 42 minutes. Forty. A network comedy is 21 minutes. An HBO show is like 59 minutes. But for an episode of Game of Thrones, I took 11 pages of notes for this episode two of season five. I barely look at them. It, I, I realize afterwards, maybe a few lines I'll highlight or bold, like quotes I know I want to use, or maybe I'll have an idea that I want to come back to. But generally, just the taking of the notes sort of cements it in my brain. But generally by the, you know, the this end of the first episode, second and the third, something begins to take shape. But it, it's usually important to me to then think about the bigger picture and maybe find use that as a way into the specifics of this show uh, if there's a larger point to be made about the industry or about um, the way storytelling is headed or something like that Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, The Great Courses. Uh, maybe you started their course writing creative nonfiction. I know I did. Uh, I've actually moved on to another one of their lecture series, which I've been watching. It's called The Modern Intellectual Tradition from Descartes to Derrida. Uh, it's an engaging look at the concept of reality and how it has impacted Western philosophy, presented by the award-winning professor Lawrence Cahoon. Great Courses has over 500 courses on many subjects, from philosophy to history to religion. Religion, many more. It's their 25th anniversary right now, so I encourage you to sign up. You can watch or listen over a bunch of medium from DVDs to CDs, streaming, digital downloads on your phone. I've been enjoying both of the courses I've taken, and for our listeners, we have a special limited time offer. You can get eight of their best-selling courses up to 80% off by going to thegreatcourses.com slash longform. This is a deal for our listeners, 80% off thegreatcourses.com slash longform. Thank you, Great Courses. Our next sponsor is Aspiration, a different kind of financial firm. Their idea is simple. Take everything you don't like about investing and do the opposite. Uh, most of Wall Street investment is really intended for millionaires. Aspiration focuses on uh, investors in the middle class. Signing up takes as little as $500 in five minutes of your time. And the best part is you choose the fee you pay them, even if it's zero. They don't make a cent other than what you decide they deserve. That means you know they're committed to working for you. Aspiration is the most charitable financial firm in America. They donate 10 cents of every dollar their company makes to microloans for struggling Americans working to build a better life. So I want you to go to aspiration.com slash longform and you can sign up. As we said, less than five minutes to get up and running. Their motto is do well and do good. And isn't it time a financial firm was built on helping us do a little more of both? Again, aspiration.com slash longform. Thank you, Aspiration. I should note that past performance is not indicative of future returns. There is no guarantee that any investment product will achieve its objectives, generate profits, and avoid losses. Investing involves risk of loss, and alternative investments may not be suitable for everyone. Before investing, consider your investment objectives. Okay, here I am back with Andy Greenwald. When I watch a first show, I'm usually kind of consumed by the awkwardness of like a pilot's new newness. Yeah. yeah. And, um, I'm constantly thinking, is this good? Should I keep watching this? Like, I'm my brain kind of can't relax into that like 
it's, stoned kind of like I always actually try to use this as a like a bass drum underneath everything making TV making anything is really hard I, I know I can get a little bit rough on shows sometimes around yeah. people but I do really admire the creative impulse and that they're making something and it, you know if, it, if it's not done in a negative or cynical way like some shows are um, I try to give them the benefit of the doubt as much as I can on the flip side of it I've seen things enough to kind of see the trends like a show like uh, The Comedians on FX that debuted recently. It's a, a, a comedy with Billy Crystal and Josh Gad. I watched the first episode and I immediately knew what I thought of it. I watched four more through gritted teeth, but it it was so just evident the DNA of what the show was, what was how it failed, first of all, in the sense that if it's the show is supposed to be about uh, an older comedian and a younger comedian and their clashing sensibilities, you have an older comedian in Billy Crystal and you have Josh Gad, who's not a comedian. So you've completely fumbled the core idea of the show. But second, I just immediately knew what it was, which was this very, very soft, very easy, self-congratulatory Hollywood, and I'm putting in quotes, satire, right? which is what Entourage kind of was and what uh, Episodes does this a little bit too, although that's a better show, which is where people in Hollywood are just, they're sort of poking fun at things, but winking and hugging themselves at the same time. So it's a lot of jokes about validated parking and your PA getting you the wrong gluten-free lunch. And this isn't funny. This is an idea of funny. And so I knew that go- immediately, but I still had to tough it out for the rest I'd of I'd like to, to pause you here yeah. because there's something I want to invent a word for. Please. And perhaps, like, you, like a perhaps you can come up with the word and then popularize it. I'm going to say that the number one the, – the original place you see this is um, the Ricky Gervais show Extras. Oh, exactly right. It's yeah. a celebrity playing a heightened yeah. and terrible version of themselves right. but with a sort of wink where Everyone's it's like, in on the joke. hey, I'm not terrible. I, would I play an asshole in right. this show if I was actually an asshole? I, I really hate that softness and it's something I actually just dinged Silicon Valley for. I think it's a very, very funny show with great performances. But you know, what is it doing? Because it seems like a satire, but the characters are pretty much only interested in making money. And, you know, the it, the show is populated with actual tech entrepreneurs and so-called tech critics, and everyone seems to be high-fiving each other. And that sort of turns everything soft when it should be hard. It's the opposite of Veep, which intentionally creates a fantasy political world that actually feels a lot like our world because they, they're not afraid of anybody or anything. And they mention no one who's real. No one makes a winking cameo. It just nails everyone. Yeah. But to go to your question, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the thing is that's hard, especially in the age of Netflix and binge-watching, is you never, you never know totally. I can't think of anything that I've really gotten wildly wrong in terms of my initial sensibility, in terms of my own taste. There are shows that I have underrated or overrated, certainly. And there are a bunch of people on Twitter who get very angry when I review a Netflix show off of three or four episodes. And then 48 hours later, they've watched all 13, you know, and I was so wrong. But I I was reviewing what I was given and I was giving the general sketch, sketching it all out. Where do those large, like I talked to um, uh, your colleague, uh, Wesley Morris. Yeah. And I said, you know, a lot of your movie reviews end up being about race and class. Yeah. Like these are repeated themes. He's like, look, I don't want to write about race and class. I just, that's what I see in all, in a lot of Hollywood filmmaking. There's a lot of kind of weird shit going on and I can't not write about it. What is it that you see? Like, what are the the sort of underlying DNA patterns that you see under TV that you kind of feel like you have to react to? I'm really interested in the psychology and humanity of people as viewed through fiction. Like, I, I really believe deeply. I mean, I was an English major in the fact in the idea that through art, through made up fiction and made up stories, we can explore ourselves and our and you know in our psychological terrain and 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 learn something about ourselves and provide insight and context and i really care about this sounds ridiculous and you know just in a small room in the yeah. middle you know in the evening but i kind i care about honesty i yeah. care about emotional and intellectual honesty um in comedies and in dramas you know a show like mad men or or the americans or recently you know better call saul was great they're pushing in directions and I, and yes i i care about something that looks cool and and dynamic camera angles and performances but I think that what what I try to do in my writing is, I mean, that's where I go to first. That's my mm-hmm. go-to place is to write about the, you know, the the emotional motivations of characters and character work. And I appreciate that there are other critics who come at things quite differently. Like um, Matt Zoller cites Ed Vulture in New York Magazine. He's a very good writer and he cares so much about, he knows a lot about film direction. 
he's a visual palette that I don't have. And so I love reading him write about direction because it's a side of the show that that's not what I'm seeing at first. It's very interesting that you cited being, I'm also an English major, and mm-hmm. it's something I don't like touch back on very much in my own life. Yeah. Like I don't think very much about like the way that English was studied in, in the yeah. college environment. But when you study uh, American or in, uh, world novels, you see these sort of repeated tropes, yeah. and you say, okay, the Russian novel was tackling the same thing six different ways, and here are these different writers. And in your own work, and I think that you're not alone in sort of citing this as the big character of, of this time, there's this sort of continuum of Tony Soprano, Walter White, yeah. Don Draper, the, the, the American the, the American anti-hero, yeah. and, and what are we going to do with him? And primarily, how does his story end being the like chief concern? When you take an idea like that, that's like not a original idea, you're not the only person writing about it, but you're writing about it across many, many different columns. Yeah. How do you keep like a thread like that going? That's a great question. And, and sometimes I, I wonder if I do. I mean, I, I do find myself falling back on similar ideas about violence and about just how exhausted I am with put upon privileged men. I certainly think we've done that. You know, I've spoken to network executives in positions of power who would agree that we've done that, and that's kind of played out. I think that we've reached a point of just self-parody with shows like Low Winter Sun, which I come back to all the time. And and you know, the first character, the first thing the character says in that is he's staring in the mirror and he says, "I'm not a bad person," <laughs> or like the world isn't black and white. You know, or and even that show Bloodline, like I just could not. My jaw dropped when you have Kyle Chandler, Coach Taylor, saying, "I'm not. A, we're not bad people, but we did a bad thing." It's like. Nobody is good or bad. Let's move past that and let's actually deal with people. I'm gratified that Mad Men is the last one of these shows on the air because I think that what Mad Men is doing, and I'm, I'm really taken with this last half season, is Mad Men is the one that has pushed it to the pushed it the furthest. You know, I think that um, David Chase with Tony Soprano, which I never got to write about, although I did get to interview David Chase, which was a thrill. He has a lot of anger and a lot of cynicism, and working in TV. And being stuck in the same rhythms of storytelling in the '70s and '80s during the you know the real really lean years for quality TV, yeah, which George R. R. Martin also was. Yes, he was turned out on that too, and and you can see a lot of anger at the status quo in a lot of ways in their work, although played out in different ways. Because I think what you know, I'm not the first person to say this, and I probably won't be the last, but The Sopranos, I think, was it was angry, and it was angry at the audience too at a certain point because he kept saying, "This is a monster. I'm right. giving you a monster, and you're cheering." every time he takes another scalp. And I think that the stasis, the fact that he could never not be a monster, he, that was his point, you know. Whereas I think Matt Weiner worked under David Chase, but what he's showing is that people can change. It's just they're inclined not to. And it's so incredibly hard. And we've reached the end of this series at the end of a decade, and our main character, Don Draper, he's still in a circle. He's still stuck in a cul-de-sac of his own making, of, of vanity and ego and alcohol and his own past and his own burden. And that can be frustrating viewing. Yeah. But it, I've been finding it almost exhilarating to see something so naughty and so psychological and so true to our lives as human beings represented in a show. That's like a great point to like dissect. Okay. So, uh, you wrote actually. I'm, I'm going to read something you wrote about uh, about oh, this, this about this new season of Mad Men. Uh, yet I find myself marking its passing with an antiquated desire to see it continue indefinitely. Yeah. If there is no obvious ending, why force one at all? Couldn't spin on for years like a whiskey soaked CSI. Yeah. So I also have been watching Mad Men. I've also been thinking about Mad Men. So when I see that, I kind of go, hmm. It feels to me like the show has been spinning for about three years in the yeah. same groove. Couldn't, in some ways, that have been like executed in one final season? And I start what starts sort of running in my head is: Is this like a business thing? Is it like we had to fill this many seasons? It's so hard. Like when you have a novelist, you can say, "Well, this guy published this book. Unless there was an editor interfering, this is what the art was." In that case, we have these. We sort of read it similarly. But have see different motives in it, and absolutely. I'm, and I'm interested. Do you like when you see a subject like that? Do you sort of research that from an internal TV industry? Yes, position? I mean, I, I I definitely try to do my writing. I, I try to always remember the reality of the business when I write what I write. Yeah, right. I, it's not wish fulfillment. I'm not I'm not a you know a new critic in the sense that it's not just the text. Right. Um, the business decisions that influence the stuff are just as fascinating as anything else. And I, you know, if you look at Breaking Bad, Aaron Paul was supposed to be a guest star, but he showed up. It worked. It changed the whole direction of the show. Right. It is a business. And at a certain point, you're keeping people employed. You're 
keeping your kids in private school in Brentwood or whatever. And, and these are real world things. And I think the thing about Mad, Mad Men, and I, I spoke about this on the on my Grantland podcast today, is it is so transparent. I mean, it's a show about creativity and about selling out and about selling a vision of a dream and being comfortable with it. And it's, you know, it's very autobiographical in that sense, I think, for Matt Weiner. I don't think he's intentionally spinning his wheels or feels like he was given too much rope. But what we do know for a fact is that he did say at some point that the idea that he had in his head more or less for a final story was basically season six, the season that ended with him showing Sally, his daughter, where he came from and the truth about himself. Right. That was sort of his final story. And I think that what he went into the last season feeling was, well, you know, like like Don and Peggy at a whiskey soaked 20, you know, all nighter. The last idea is the best idea, and something will pull something out of the ether. Something from the unconscious will inform this. And what we're seeing now in these very last few episodes is a show, it's ambivalent about closure, about finality, about ever being satisfied. Yeah. I think that will leave people unsatisfied because it's a little too uncomfortable and a little too true, and maybe not enough art. I don't know. But the second, third episode of, the, of this last season yeah. was basically, it was clearly about someone who is uncomfortable with not just ending a TV show, but with the idea that the end of a TV show has become this vaunted, heavy thing and that it should matter. I I feel like he he feels like the show and and life sort of ends, doesn't end unless it does. I mean, unless (laughs) it really ends, it's sort of a shrug onto the next thing. And that's been fascinating to watch. And, and that, you know, that's why I like TV. It's this linear snaking thing where life, life, life affects a TV show. It has a life cycle in the same way it affects us as both humans and as thinkers and critics and writers. You just swayed me in favor of Mad Men after like a certain amount of uh, griping. From I'm feeling my... I'm feeling very emotional about this 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 half season. So I, I'm sort of interested. Like you 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 cited the um you know the the private schools in Brentwood. Yeah, and I think you you They're seem excellent. I hear top notch. And you know a lot of times when you're writing about a show, I won't say that you like report how exactly how it got made, but there is sort of a subtext of like. This is what this network is kind of yes. thinking. You know, this is how a show like this works from a business perspective. And this is why people do or don't gamble on it. Um, Empire comes to mind. Yeah. You've written a lot about, hey, uh, for a long time, why didn't we make any shows with black leads? Now we have one and it's the biggest hit yeah. of the de- you know, and, one and of the bigger hits of the decade. And that there's right? not just creative reasons or um, political reasons to do that. There's financial reasons to yes. do that. I mean, I tried to capture the whole the whole vision of the industry, I mean, such as it is. So you you live here in New York. I do. Um, what like what? How do you maintain ties to to the TV industry? Well, for Game of Thrones fans, you know how Varys the eunuch maintains ravens throughout all the continents. Yes, that's basically okay. No, um, it's interesting. You know, I on some level, I think it's been beneficial because so much of LA uh, is industry and is an industry town and it's a little myopic about that. Yeah. So I think that I've been able to have some perspective on it from here. I think in general, the more I've done the job, the more I've learned, um, both from from speaking to other other critics, um, the, the showrunners that I've become collegial with, or yeah. I've, we've know each other, acquaintances mm-hmm. with, um, people I've had on my podcast, have interviewed, visits I've made to sets, drinks I've had with people. It, to, it's it's a, always a weird balance for whatever for anyone who covers any industry. I it, I appreciate being read, I guess, by people in the industry and then getting feedback. And then you know some people, particularly if they're nice, over the years have said, "Well, you didn't get that exactly right because it was a studio issue, not a network issue." Mm-hmm. And this is the thinking here, or I've met the person here, and I've sat down, you know, with the head of this network, and so you start to piece the jigsaw puzzle together. But I I it's never the right perfect chemistry or balance. Uh, in terms of how much industry or knowledge or not is in the piece, but I, I'm always trying to remix the formula to so, get it right. So, what are those relationships like? I mean, are you are they are people leaking information to you? No, because I don't break news. You don't, but uh, like, okay, let's say a show we're mm-hmm. writing about show X. We need like a, a like a faux uh, example show for this. I'll give you one. But, okay, but, t- but tell me the the, the, the setup. Okay, so so the setup is basically like. Once you start, once you start picking apart a show, you, it's from this network. Like, what what pieces of knowledge are you building on? Do you know someone at the network that you can talk to about the genesis of the show? I generally don't, to be honest. I generally don't do that. I probably should. And I'm also wondering what the like even is that even would that be considered unethical to no, do? No, I that? don't think. So. I don't think so. Um, 
there have been many cases where I've written about shows where I've had some more insider knowledge than I've used. But there's also examples of something like, um, so Netflix had the show called Marco Polo. I did not watch that a show as a result of your review. It was awful. It's <laughs> awful. But to me, writing about an awful show is ultimately not that rewarding or interesting. What was interesting to me about it was why they were making it and what it was. So it was sort of this hybrid piece where it was a contextual review. I don't really, I just made that up on the spot. I don't know yeah. if that's right. But I was saying, well, here's why they're making a show that is lousy. And that's not, it doesn't matter that it's lousy because what they wanted was ambitious and global. And it's because they're becoming a global company and they need to own content that can play in as many countries as possible. And, and you know, in terms of um, reporting, I just, I deep-sighted things. I mean, I read the Hollywood Reporter stories and a lot of New York Times stories about the financials. And God, were they mad. Oh, my God. Netflix was really? so mad at me. Yeah, I got, I got a, a, a very angry email from uh, someone very high up in the company that I'd never spoken to before, basically saying that the, the articles that I cited in the New York Times were not accurate and that I should have run that by them. And mm. I was like, well, I'm not going to fact check the New York Times. Right. He pointed out one thing that was, that was incorrect in my piece, and we added a, a note. We corrected it. That was, you know, that should have been correct. In that situation, yeah. you're not an investigative reporter. No. Do you, is there any con- context in which you feel like you have to call someone and get their side uh, yeah, of the story? I, absolutely, I would if I was if I felt I was stepping outside the bounds of writing a review. Right. Um, I think that I would. There's definitely been some times when I've reached out to people in the writing of a review to get a timeline right, you know, or, or just to make sure I had, yeah, make sure I got my facts straight about some things. But they were what they were mad about wasn't just that it was a bad review. They were mad that they, they read it as impugning their, their artistic right. vision. The companies that have been doing this for a long time understand the role of critics. And I mean that in the most self-denigrating way possible. <laughs> I think our role is minimal. Yeah. We are not that important in the scheme of things, I don't think. And because of that, the companies that have been doing it for a long time, they, they know what, we're, what we do and what we don't do, and they roll with it. Right. Because not everyone likes everything. But I think some of the newer entrants are very sensitive, and I understand why. I mean, they're spending a lot of money. They're trying to make their name in a field. And Well, some of those things aren't really things that you can I – mean, when you say, like, Netflix wants content that plays internationally – that's not really like a fact-checkable idea. Netflix could say, no, we don't. And you could say, right. well, I still think you do. Well, and, and you know, to, to the thing that the guy corrected me on was I, I was talking about how House of Cards was owned by a, um independent production company, this media rights capital, put the package together, owned the show, and then sold it to Netflix for distribution in certain territories. So that's why House of Cards is on HBO or something in some countries in Europe. I mean, it's... Yeah. That was a great way for Netflix to make a splash in the creative space, but they need to own their content. Right. They need to be the razor blade and the razor company. And so they needed something that would play and help them push into markets, lucrative markets like China. And this is the thinking behind a show like Marco Polo. And I, that's what it is. And they might not like it because I think that they're they're split. They, they want to be an enormously successful, capitalistic, money-making company. Good for them. They should. Yeah. But they also want to be seen as you know stewards of good art. They want, everyone wants both, and right. very few people are able to do both. Sort of in the same way that Silicon Valley wants to make lots yeah. of money, but also wants to change the world and be recognized as good at the same time. This Absolutely. is kind of the age of the like win, win, win. Everybody wants to win at everything. You're yeah. right. It, it's really true. And you know, I, I write a lot of really nice things about FX. I think they're a well-run network, and, a, and I think they make great shows. And they also made the Charlie Sheen sitcom Anger Management, like 120 right. episodes of that. And right. they do kind of get a pass for that. But at the same time, they get a pass for that because it's a business. Right. So I'm interested. You're coming from a English major background yeah. and you've written books. Where did you start off as a writer? At Spin. At Spin Magazine. Yeah. I, um, I interned uh, for Spin when I was in college and I was writing about um, – I was writing – you know, for the arts, the weekly paper uh, about music mostly. And uh, I interned for Spin uh, in the summer of 1998. And uh, they, at that point, uh, had a only web presence was on AOL for AOL subscribers. And it was called Spin Online. And they couldn't pay anyone, which made it perfect for interns. So I wrote, by the end of that summer, I wrote a few reviews for them and kept it up when I went back to school for my senior year. And um, they went online boldly in March of 99, you know, really just hitting the wave. And uh, the first review on the site when it went on the web was of Blur's album 13. And I wrote that review. So I got paid for that. That was my first paid gig. And I ended up getting a job right out of grad, right the week after I graduated, I started at Spin as an assistant and uh, was there for a a while. That was the the last 
kind of golden period for like a magazine like Spin. It, it kind of was. Well, like well, for all magazines. What was yeah. it like working at Spin? Like uh, uh, early aughts. I mean, working at Spin was a dream because I was such a huge fan, and uh, there were so many people there that I really admired, and I got to be in the room with them, and and it was an interesting time in terms of magazines because. Spin had just come off of this real golden period where any artist that they could put on the cover was not only something that they could aesthetically stomach and champion, but something that would sell. Like a time when you could be like, boy, the breeders are great. We'll put them on the cover and it'll sell. Right. Uh, that time was over when I got there. And so I was there for a time of some real flailing where our editor at the time, Alan Light, was basically throwing up his hands being like, well, M&M sells every time we put him on the cover. So we'll put him on the cover twice a year. But should we be a magazine that puts pink on the cover? Let's try. Should we put Limp Bizkit on the cover? Let's try. Yeah. So it was a time of real experimentation. My time was sort of a little bit bifurcated because I was hired to be the assistant to the features editor, a guy named Dave Moody, who founded Might Magazine with Dave Eggers. Um, and so I was working with him on non-music stuff, and I was reviewing video games for them because they didn't have anyone else to do it, uh, but still writing for the website. And then s- pretty quickly, six months after getting started, I got hired to replace my former editor at the website. So I was the editor of Spindock when I was 22, which is not a compliment to me. It's really more an indictment of their confused web strategy. Was the stuff from the print magazine appearing on oh, the web? No. Oh, you had to just make your own website. Yes. And th- I was basically, in, within two years, I was director of new media for Vibe Spin Ventures. So for Vibe and Spin, I was running both those websites. At 23 or 24, we had our own office and we had... Um, just all our own content. We would review albums that they reviewed too. We had so many bands come in. We hired a video guy and we would have acoustic performances on our couch. No mics really, no anything. All these bands that are big now, like, you know, like relatively big and big to me, like, you know, Death Cab for Cutie or Spoon, all, all these bands that became relatively known later came in and played acoustic for us on the couch. It was so fun. It was a dream. But I would go into editorial meetings weekly. Well, first I had to ask to be allowed into the editorial meetings and say, can we piggyback here? Can we offer content? Can we do things extra with your cover stories? And it was just, it was a wall. So they were just not interested in like letting you put one of those cover stories on the internet? I mean, we did put the cover stories on, but we would say, okay, you're doing a cover story on Moby. Can we piggyback on your access and do a side thing? Can we have extra complimentary coverage? And to be fair, you know, no one, A, knew what was any of it meant. B, no one had time to think about it. Everyone was doing their job. You know, right. this idea that we all do all of the jobs, I think, is a relatively later, <laughs> yeah. later phenomenon. Um, and so there's no mean spiritedness. It was just impossible to coordinate and navigate. And um, I was really proud of the work we did, and it was really fun. But at the same time, I was doing a lot of writing for the magazine because I got paid to do it because it was a separate thing. Right. Early 2001, they fired my whole staff except for me and one guy and moved us into a storage closet off the Vibe conference room. So that was when I was like, this isn't. This is not working out. So yeah. I got a book deal to write my first book and then left, but stayed on the masthead and wrote a bunch of cover stories for Spin for a couple of years after that. The book was about emo? Was yeah, the first, first book? book was about emo and teenagers, and that came out of some stories I'd done for Spin yeah. um, and turned into more stories I did for Spin. I was freelance pretty much from that point on. Um, yeah, I wrote a novel after that called Miss Misery and was freelancing for whoever would have me. Like I did some stuff, a lot of stuff for Spin. That was my main gig for a long time until they had a change in... right change in ownership. And then um, uh, Entertainment Weekly I wrote a lot for, and Blender I was writing a ton for, and Cover Stories, and Rolling Stone eventually, and then and then Vulture. And... Compared to like writing about TV now, yeah. like what was sort of the like, what was the challenge of writing about music during that period? What was amazing was being at the bleeding edge of two dying industries at once. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. It's like yeah. to, to be involved in the shrinking music industry and the shrinking magazine publishing industry, seeing it like the race to the bottom to go from when I first started writing for Spin, you know, not just uh, the access we would get to artists, but, you know, a 300 word record review um, where you could or you could pick and choose interesting things and combine them and really allow yourself to be creative to when I was writing record reviews for EW, I was grateful for the exposure and for the work, of course, but those were four sentences. So yeah. they became really more like haikus, you know, right. there was a time when like for Blender, Blender sent me to Milan for a cover story in 2006. And that was like the last gasp. By the end, you know, I was I was the monthly pop critic for Penthouse magazine which again, steady gig, yeah. and no one I knew would admit to reading it. But you know, that was I would get records and sit alone in my apartment, and I would write a couple sentences about them, and then would do it again next month. And it was it was transactional, and it was not very fun. Do you feel like you have sort of a Zen training of like being like by yourself with media now? 
it's driving me crazy. No, I miss. Yeah. I mean, I'm really grateful for the fact that I get to do podcasts and things at Grandland because yeah. it it makes it less lonely. Yeah, you cited it's interesting, like that period in music. I remember, when, like when I was in high school, the alternative rock station where I lived was Live 105 in the yeah. Bay Area, and it had like a very, it had a, like a glue to it, like it was alternative rock like it was a kind of music and, mm-hmm. and it looked backwards a little bit to like the cure yeah. and like a, you the, know the, the college rock tradition the, you know and the smiths and it, and it but it, it felt cohesive like a whole and i remember i came back from college where we're around the same age and like limp the the like yeah. uh, rap, rap rock had, had come over. on and there was this perception that it was sort of like fracturing mm-hmm. like and it fractured in this way that kind of ruined it as like a an industry yeah. where it was like we can't have like Limp Bizkit and the Smiths on the same station yes it's, and it seems like the audience kind of split that way and you covered emo mm-hmm. as a topic which is like sort of a, a child of that splintering um, at least like as viewed as a like sad, a sad lonely child a sad lonely child so like it is, I'm, yeah. I'm interested like how like when you when you took on something like emo that's a, a, a subculture mm-hmm. like how did how did you think about writing about that well it's interesting I never was that kid like that wasn't the music that I liked and I tell the story a lot I think it's in the book but one of my best friends Chris Ryan who I do the podcast with at Grandland he's an editor there now we were friends in college and and he lived in Boston and I remember going to see him and he showed me like a promise ring record and I was like no hard pass <laughs> this is not for me I'll, I'll stick with my Bell and Sebastian and $20 British imports thanks so much but uh my way into it was when I went to the shows, what I saw was this performance of adolescence and of high school um, that I found really affecting and deeply touching, which is basically everyone traditionally allies themselves with something larger to make sense of themselves. Um, and for me, yeah, it was, it was indie rock or hip hop or the music that I liked and, you know, reading magazines about it. And I felt part of a larger culture. And maybe it's not music for everyone. Maybe it's dance or, or art. Or I don't know. But basically this idea that you a lot you you find your people yeah. uh, and I always wondered how people in small towns found their people was it an older brother who or sister who was like a musical Sherpa did the Smiths play one show in San Antonio once and changed right. the town I don't know how did that happen um, and I was fascinated with seeing what emo was to me was basically the democratization of that kind of artistic subcultural flowering because instead of you know for I guess you know for the same age like for us you 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 see the the seven inch record or you see the poster and you go to the show and you you travel and it's hard work and it separates your effort separates you maybe yeah. from other people and it's regional and- it is regional and separate the internet suddenly made it all possible you know you you could click and become a different person you could click and have access to an entire world and other people like you and talk to them and read their live journals and it sort of was this amazing thing and the kids i saw at a dashboard confessional show singing their hearts out and telling me afterwards that you know what they what mattered to them was art and literature looked like the kids that would have given me a hard time in high school you know they were dockers and white hats yeah but here they were like being vulnerable and i found that very touching and amazing and so my way into to it was that it was never the music although I came to like quite a bit of the music I was really into that sort of performance of basically becoming yourself but in public and having that having that touch so many different types of people I'm going to go out on a limb here and uh, I haven't thought this through very far but we have this idea of fandoms and that like in the internet age fandoms are kind of like king you know Uh, you go to comic-con you get your fandom out there. The movie can't fail. You know this Avengers movie can't fail. We got a fandom behind us. Mm-hmm. Fifty Shades of Grey. It's got a fandom behind it. People are writing the fan fiction. And a femdom. The <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that's definitely staying. Um, TV seems to be, and this there was sort of little fandoms that have cropped up, but mm-hmm. for the most part, TV is not a a fandom medium right now. You see people like very promiscuously moving around different genres of TV. Oh, right, yeah. You don't have your show that's your show and, like, fuck all the other shows. People are very sort of diverse in in their watching, and it seems to me, like, at least in my own experience of TV, like, TV is the thing that, like, I would tell my parents to check out a show. Yes, you're right about that. And this is the num- maybe the number one reason why I prefer writing about TV to about music is that it's not tribal. It's yes. not protective. Is there a single TV tribe out there? Yeah, uh, true detective fans who <laughs> burn me in effigy every night. Being a critic or, you know, expressing an opinion is can be touchy because, it's, you know, especially for people who are younger and love something unconditionally and haven't really thought critically about stuff, if you criticize it, you're criticizing them. Right. Yeah, I try to always remember that I would have felt the same way if someone said something when I was 20, 21, you know, or younger. You know, I always say, look, well, if I didn't like it, I didn't take it away from you. But it feels like I did. 
Right. I think, you know, if I went into their house and took something that mattered to them, if they read me saying something negative or, or, or cruel about it. But I, you're, you've really touched on something, and you're exactly right in the sense that people are enthusiastic about TV. I yes. love enthusiasm in general. People want to read about it. They want to talk about it. They want to know more. They want to extend its presence in their lives. And they are, you're, you're really right about that. They are, people are more generous about TV than they are about anything else. And I think it's, it's become, again, a communal medium. I think movies used to be that. You would go to the movies. Yes. Um, TV is kind of the last communal medium that we have in the sense that, you know, music has fractured and become a very independent thing. And it always was more tribal. But people used to talk about the water cooler show, but the Internet is that water cooler now. And people want to be part of the conversation. It's really nice to be a part of something that people generally want to talk about. They don't feel violated when you talk about it. Actually, you know, the era that I've been writing about these last four years has seen the fracturing of what had been a very consensus dominated landscape in that I think ev- you know everyone watched The Sopranos eventually everyone watched The Wire certainly by the end everyone watched Breaking Bad kind of the only show we have left that's like that is Game of Thrones and it's not my favorite show but it's my favorite show to be a part of yeah because I get to share that experience and engage with it and make jokes and get just berated when I make a mistake but I do like that social aspect of almost anything when you see a trend, something like that happening in TV, like that feeling right now of kind of like, hey, we're all in this together, like we're all watching Game of Thrones together. Yeah. Are you seeing the sort of undercurrents moving like on, on this show or, in or just in the whole TV climate? Like, how do you know when stuff is changing, I guess? Because a lot I feel like a lot of your writing is about it used to be like this, but actually now we're seeing this. Yeah. And I'm trying to do that. In a, yeah, I appreciate you noticing that. I mean, I'm trying not to do it in a. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to say that the house is on fire. Yes. I think that things are always are generally things are fine and we just move through eras. But I, I definitely always want to try to connect the past and the future to the present in what I'm writing about because um, we're always moving towards something in the industry and in, and, in, and in life. I think that we are losing that consensus show. And, it, and it's not too dissimilar from what happened with music in the sense that, you know, now everyone can have their favorite things and find them pretty easily. You know, Netflix's whole... And, and now Amazon, too. Their whole point is to provide as much as possible, targeted to as many different people as possible, and to get it to them in a way that's convenient to them. Right. People often say that I, I, I don't really like the binge-watching model because it doesn't help me as a critic, which is probably true on some level. But on a deeper level, I really care about the idea of episodes being of, of value on their own, of things being portioned out in reasonable ways or in the ways that, the ways that they were created to be portioned out. And I like the conversation. I, I like the way that we can all, whether we watch it on, on Sunday night or Monday morning or by Tuesday, the very right. least by Thursday, we've probably seen it. And then maybe we can talk about it. And I think that we've seen examples of shows that have been dumped to be binged, just sort of they hit and then they fade into that sort of individualized ether that I think is, you know, it's great for you and your significant other on the couch. But I, I do miss the communal aspect of it and the shared conversation. Well, the, there's an element of the communal aspect, like, I'm, I guess Lost is maybe the first show I remember oh, yeah. this. Come, God, come, great. The people behind the show were clearly looking at how people were reacting to individual episodes and yeah, sort of like... probably too much Probably times, reacting yeah. a little too strongly to, to it. And I know that you... You host a podcast that often has showrunners yeah. on it. So I'm, I'm interested in, like, how you've sort of gotten in the head of the people who are making these shows. Like, what do you like? What do you ask a showrunner? And, and, like, what are you interested in about how these shows are made um, that you that come you bring to the table in an interview with someone like that? Almost everything fascinates me. And you mentioned the business part. I mean, the showrunner is an almost impossible job where you're both driving the train and laying the track at the same time. Yeah. Um, I love the idea of a season of television divided into 12 episodes or whatever. And when you sit down in the summer, it's a blank canvas. And they have to really think about, well, what matters to them? What do they value? What stories do they want to tell? Where are the characters, if it's a you know a second or third, fourth, fifth season? Where were they? Where are they going? What do they want to do with them? And then there's this weird alchemy where ideas that they had set in stone, tracks and paths that they had written, some of them maintain all the way through, but then others start to change and mutate and evolve and with casting and with their, your writers come into the room with their own experiences and lives. And I, I, I think there's there's something really inspiring to me about being at the head of that, what, what do you call the room where they drive the train? It's not a cockpit. but uh, no, I was going to say the caboose. That's the wrong side. That's the wrong side. The, the engine room. Being in the engine room of something like that and, and driving it. And, you know, I, mostly when I talk to showrunners, they just seem dazed like they've just been in a bunker right and they don't know how it happened and they haven't seen daylight or their families for a long long time and so when i tell them something 
good or bad. They're just like desperate. They're like, tell me, what is the world outside? How is this being received? We have no idea. It's really good when you know they'll admit that why something didn't work or how something didn't work. You seem very interested in sort of the idea of imperfection. Yes. Well, I think that TV is essentially an imperfect medium. Yeah. It just is. It, it's, you know, a movie can be tinkered with for days, months, years. Yes. Um, there can be alternate versions released. You can fix it later. You can fix it in post, you know. TV, you just got to do it. And there's this thing where, you know, where you plotted out a season of television, and you've done the most work you can, and you've been very in advance of something. But there's this episode where there's a beloved character, and that character is going to have this beautiful final arc and die. Yeah. At a certain point, it's Tuesday. And the person who's going to write that script is going to go home and write that script. And that script's going to come back on Thursday, and it's going to be a pile of pages. And if you're the showrunner and you look at it and you say, well, okay, this is the ore now. We didn't have the ore. Now we yeah. have the ore. Now we have to turn it into something. And we can't turn it into, you know, Michelangelo's David because we have to shoot it on Tuesday. We have to right. show it to the network. We have to, whatever the next step is. We have to hope that at a certain point, you put it in the, the red copy or whatever, you know, numbering, coloring system they use and the cast reads it and then you film it and then it's done. You know, and, and that's that's incredible to me. And it, and it and I and I, I relate to it also because right now I'm sitting with you. I have to write a column this week. I have to write a column next week. I have to write a recap right. for Game of Thrones episode three. I haven't seen the episode yet. Right. We're talking on Monday. On Sunday at 10 p.m., whatever I've written this week is going to be on the Internet and people are going to read it and then I have to do it again. And so... I definitely am projecting. Do your columns get edited before they get posted? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I we have great infrastructure that I'm very, very grateful. Are those people editing like in to. the middle of the night? Sometimes. I mean, in, in I have the first four episodes of Game of Thrones, and I've been filing the, the, the recaps on Fridays so as not to ruin anyone's weekend, including my own. But often with other posts, like, you know, things that are written, written for the, the blog on the site, I'll write the piece between 8 a.m. And, and noon turn in at noon and it's on the internet by 2 p.m. If I'm lucky and the editor didn't find anything and it'll just pass it to copy, copy edits, fact checks. Are you constantly like, oh shit, I could have like written about this right as something goes up? Honestly, no. And, and that's why I generally do better when I just, I think about it the day before. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll take notes. I'll have seen the show. I'll be as prepared as possible. Maybe made a list of ideas that I have in my head. Maybe. Yeah. But it's generally best when I just wake up clean, have a cup of coffee and just write it. And then I, I generally don't ever regret, because at least in this job, I know I have another crack at it. I know I'm coming back at some point. The, the model of that kind of writing seems to sort of uh, originate, like Bill Simmons is, is your boss or editor-in-chief. Boss, yeah. And he, uh, I mean, that's his thing. Like, he posts a lot of columns. He's probably yeah. the most prolific sports Absolutely. writer of the last, uh, his era. Is that something that you, like, gravitated towards naturally, or did you have to train yourself to, like, work at this clip? Definitely have to train yourself to work at this clip. There's no question. Um, I think I, I took to it because I preferred not fiddling, not getting too cute, because if yeah. I'm left alone, I, I will. I also really appreciated after you mentioned Solitude, I really appreciated immediately having access to his amazing audience and the platform yeah. and being able to get feedback and response yeah. and not feel isolated anymore. But he gave me a good pep talk once, which is, you know, when it became clear that, that there would be the one piece a week that was a column that would be in the future well and be a little bit more of a focus, yeah. he was saying, well, this is what a, column, a columnist is, and no one would be surprised that he used a sports metaphor. <laughs> but, um, you know, a, a, a columnist is a pitcher. You have to take the ball every, in this case, every seven days. And yeah. some days, you know, you strike out 10 and you go eight innings. Some days you get knocked out in the fourth, but you take the ball and you throw yeah. your pitches. And that was hard for me, because even though I'm talking about how, how much I appreciate the deadlines, I also hate the deadlines, and I right. want everything to be good, maybe too much. Is that tricky with, like, you know, you were talking about getting this email from, you know, Netflix being pissed yeah. off, and you have relationships with a lot of these showrunners. Like, you're rapidly writing about a show yeah. that probably is someone you may encounter. Like, do do those things wear on you? Like, I, Well, one thing that I have always tried to hold on to, and I, I hope I've been able to keep up with it, is that I'm I'm, I'm of no use to anyone if I'm not honest. I'm of no use to, to myself. I'm of no use to my editors, the readers, and even the people making the shows. If they're serious about what they do, I have to take what I do seriously. And I try to keep it not personal, and I try to keep it, you know, I try to give it the rigor that it deserves, even if it's not good. Mm -hmm. That said, if I know I don't like something and I'm not going to like something, I try to stay away. I mean, I, I just don't. Like, I'm not going to go to the premiere party. Yeah. Premiere parties can be very nice and fun. But if, I, if I'm not liking the thing, I don't really feel good about going to take their drinks right. or glad handing. You know, but then also these people are professionals and they're generally, and I'm grateful to it, they're generally gracious. I don't know what they say about me behind my back, probably nothing good. But like, like Homeland, you know, 
I championed, loved the show at the beginning, um, had a great relationship with um, Alex Gonza, who, who runs the show, and he gave me some exclusive interviews, and you know, and then I, I did not like the third season. Yeah, we were together on that one. Did not like the third season and wrote that, and then I did see him, and he was, he was very gracious. He's a lovely guy, and I really appreciated this. It helped me, too, think about what I'm doing as a professional and as a critic. You know, we, we talked about his, his kids' year abroad in college, you know, and mm-hmm. he asked me about my family, and like... That was nice. And could you talk to him about that third? I mean, like, that's what I'm wondering. It's like, can you only sort of talk directly to people about shows when you're kind of in the same boat as them? No. And I I appreciate you mentioning that. I mean, I would like to sit down with him again. Yeah. You know, that was at a social event. It wasn't a podcast. Um, I probably should have had him on a podcast to talk about it. Yeah. Especially because in the fourth season, I was out on and then I came back in on and I think it's in a better place now. So maybe we could start from a more mutually appreciative thing. But but it's it's a really good point. I mean, it, it probably would make for often it would probably make for better listening if I was more confrontational with people that I disagreed with. But at the same time, I don't always like doing that. And, and I generally don't want to talk to someone that I'm not enthusiastic about. Right. Okay. I, this is this is the this is a question I think a lot of listeners are going to have uh, out there. And I don't really I ask this question sort of uh, as a, uh, uh, a a naive person. What is the deal with recaps? Explain the rise of the recap. Well, theoretically, the recap started on sites like Television Without Pity for people who literally missed the show. Right. Tell me what happened last night. But fans were using these these as an outlet to just sort of have their own theories and pet peeves yeah. and vent and and obsess and love, and they became you know kind of a style of writing in and of themselves. And so a way to sort of we were referring to the water cooler, a way to sort of re-experience the show through others and with other people. Right. I think that uh, Alan Sepinwall, who's now the critic at Hitfix and is just a, a a great critic, a great writer, and a really great and nice guy, he's been very supportive. I think that he sort of mastered the form. I mean, he's, first of all, he's just unbelievable. He's a machine. I don't know how he has time to watch shows and have such clean and generally correct opinions about almost all of them. But he, I think he was sort of leading the charge in terms of what did everyone else think? Here's what happened the next morning. Here's my take on it. So he doesn't call them recaps. He called them reviews. In general, you know, with shows, with the next morning, Monday morning, when everyone wanted to talk about the Sopranos or event, Lost was really the big one. Yeah. Lost really turned the tide. Everyone wanted to talk about it and their theories. And websites, which were trying to figure out how to monetize and how to become a thing, saw the traffic. Yeah. It was like, let's get in on this. I was a big champion of recaps for a while because when I was doing them for Vulture on shows like Friday Night Lights or doing them for Grantland on um, Breaking Bad or a show like um, the first season of The Americans I recapped, it was such a thrill not only to have the continuing conversation with the fandom, which is that word used, but... Uh, and, you know, see where people were with the show and re- even read the comments, which was I, was okay back then and not okay now. We, we don't have them anymore. I'm yeah. very grateful to that. But to have a conversation with the show, to really engage with a work of art as it evolved and changed on that track we were talking about. Ultimately, I think the value of them became less and less. There are too many. You know, there is no reason to read 11 takes on Downton Abbey. Right. There's probably no reason to read more than one unless you're a big fan. But, you know, it's not – it became sort of a mill. Like you could just get young writers to just churn them out. You could pay them not very much because they would serve a purpose. Yes. And I think that some of the creativity went out the window with them. I also think we discovered internally that unless it's Breaking Bad, which is a phenomenon – it's of middling value because you're only writing to the diehard fans. And as TV has become more fractured and more, you know, and more individuated, it's just not as valuable anymore. So the only show I recap now is Game of Thrones down from a point where the first two years on the site I was recapping. I was always recapping one show at least. And I read I read uh, the the Mad Men recap. I read your Game of Thrones yeah. recaps and I read Molly Lambert's Mad yeah. Men recaps. And they're actually very different experiences for me as a reader. Mm-hmm. I've read the books of Game of Thrones. So oh, I'm yeah. like So you hate not, me. Well no, I'm just I'm not <laughs> lost like I'm not lost. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. I read Molly's uh, Mad Men recaps, my experience is it's kind of like an English class when someone's like, and this whole thing is like a metaphor for like, and I'm like, well, what? Yeah. I think if that's a direction that they could go in with people vibing on their own personal takes on the thing and, yeah. and sharing their, 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 their vision of it, not being in a definitive review-y way, but this is yeah. my experience with the show and here's someone else's. I think those still serve purpose, but I, I definitely have found that whenever possible, it's, I think it's a more valuable to the readers and to just to me as a thinker and writer to just sort of take a minute. You're sort of on the bleeding edge of what I see as a, a larger trend about, about writing in the internet, which is your most formal work is, I guess, 
your column. I mean, that's probably the yeah. most edited, the thing you put it's the most, most edited, the most yeah. work and the most sort of heart into. And then you're working on this sort of uh, declining slope of casualness. Where you're right. doing a recap. Uh, the recap doesn't need to be quite as edited as right. um, or, or, the, or the preview, the quick take, the yeah. quick take, and the podcast is not going to be edited in that way at all. It's not prose. Right. I know that some writers who are sort of don't engage in the like podcast level that are kind of like huh, everything I like do has to be like great you know it has to be like really like thought out do you, does is it ever strange to you sort of being on varying degrees of casualness in these different mediums well I, I don't have that problem because everything I do is great um, <laughs> no I'm grateful I'm really really grateful for it I know I'm not the only writer who you've talked to who have said this writing is the worst I yeah. hate writing. Writing is a nightmare. Uh, if you can avoid doing it, I highly recommend it. I love talking. Talking yeah. is much more fun. I love talking too. There's uh, a reason why I'm hosting a podcast. And never write anything. Yeah, it's much more fun. It's you know, and it's much more immediate. And yeah. like I, I much prefer it. I don't. You don't get lost in yourself. You can't. You can't get trapped, and and you're not wrestling with yourself in that way. So I'm so grateful for the outlet. Uh, you know, the way my mind works is that if I'm told it's a column, I'm going to freak out more. Right. Like if you told me it was just a piece for the blog that. I, I would write it faster. Right. You know. That said, I do have more time to do the column. Uh, Dan Fearman, who's you know, is the essentially the editor. Bill's the editor in chief. Dan is I don't know his title, but he's he's more of a day to day editor. He's a great line editor and very helpful. He will push me on things, which I'm grateful for. Yes. So that makes it different. But no, I think it's really good to have all those things. All right. This is my uh, my last question since it, it's approaching 90 degrees in this. Uh, Extremely small room. I hope it's a. I'm cozy over good. here. Okay, you're good I'm over good. there. I'm sweating. You must be on the hard drive or something. Um, you know, yeah. Well, I got the PlayStation under me here. Um, as someone who's thought so much about TV from sort of the inside out, from the business, yeah. the creative side. I mean, is that? Do you want to do that with yourself? Does that appeal to you? It's definitely appealing, but it's never gone in that direction. I mean, I, I before Grantland started, I was writing scripts. I mean, that was what my goal was. I wanted to get out of freelancing. I wanted to get out of being critic. And I, I had an agent. I had spec scripts. I'd had, I'd had some small paid work. And like everything in Hollywood, a lot of things just vanish. Yeah. The first thing I said when I was uh, reached out, someone reached out to me about Grandland, I was like, no, thanks. Before it launched, I was like, no, I'm good. And then before it launched again, uh, Lane Brown, who's now at New York Magazine, came back at me and said, this is what we could be and what it could do. And I was like, I don't know. These jobs on the internet tend to get a little blurry. <laughs> And it got blurry in the best way. And suddenly I had access to all these people and ideas that mattered so much to me from a different way than I had been going. Um, but as soon as I took the job, I stopped. I mean, I had to stop yeah. doing the other thing. I think it wouldn't work to do both. But the desire and interest is there. But, you know, like I know for certain I could never work at NBC now. Like, you know, <laughs> I, like we said. I think like Netflix we said, is kind of unhappy it, right. also. I had to be honest and I have to do the best job I can with the job I have now. And I am not out there looking necessarily for... To, to, to go into those fields on that level. But I'll put it this way. If you work in an industry and you care about it, I can't imagine not being curious to have access to every door at some point just to find out what it would be like. Yeah, I mean, because even if it was all just like a long con to research to become the best TV critic ever, why wouldn't you say no? I, the point is just never say no. That's my advice to freelance writers in general. Never say no. Never say no. Uh, thank you, Andy Greenwald. This oh, thank great. you, Aaron. This was really fun. Appreciate it. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Andy Greenwald for fitting me into his hectic TV watching schedule. Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our intern, Rachel Mabe. Thanks to our sponsors, Tiny Letter, The Great Courses, and Aspiration. If you want to learn more about Aspiration, you should go to aspiration.com slash longform. If you want to give us a rating, you should go on iTunes and do so. It'll make us happy. Thank you. We'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. 
Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.